Welcome to Tangents from Coin Center. I'm Jerry Brito, and I've got with me uh, our good friend Peter Van Valkenburg. Hi, Peter. Hi, Jerry. Uh, how are you doing? How are you feeling? A little stressed. <laughs> Home renovation stress, which we won't we don't need to talk about in public. Okay. We won't talk about that. Instead, we will talk about the fact that yesterday we filed our third and hopefully final comment letter in the ongoing FinCEN crypto rulemaking. You're jinxing it. We're going to end up with like six comments. Six more. Um, and so we wanted to talk about that today uh, and tell folks uh, what we said and, and all that. Um, so maybe we should start by giving just a very, very brief um recounting of why why there's a third comment that we're filing. Why do we, I mean, typically in these rulemakings, you file one. Yeah. Uh, there, we have filed three. Um, we just love it so much. We just love it. Uh, so, so maybe I'll just say briefly that folks will recall that uh, over the holidays, uh, the last administration announced this rulemaking and gave very little time to respond. Uh, as I say, over the holidays, they announced it, they gave like 15 days. And we rushed to file our first comment, yeah. and that was focused on the uh, probably the, the part that was most egregious about this proposed rulemaking, which is the counterparty identification requirement for self-hosted wallets. Yeah, I mean two things. So it was it was geez, there are procedural deficiencies in this process. Mm -hmm. this is a, the paradigmatic example of a midnight rulemaking. It's an administration trying to rush things through before before the new administration comes in with no actual public policy justification for that rush, just like complete disregard for actual meaningful public comments. And we, we, you, you wrote that half talked about, you know, this is not how we're supposed to do rulemakings. There's APA deficiencies, uh, there's standard practices that are not being followed and norms yeah. that are not being followed. And then the second half, which I wrote, was more about the counterparty identification, which we've always considered the most egregious aspect of this rulemaking because it's not technology neutral and it would create the um, much feared, for the right reasons, database of Bitcoin addresses of people who aren't even customers of Coinbase matched to their name and physical address. Right. Um, and Cryptocurrency address, we should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any cryptocurrency address, basically the ideal database for criminals to extort, you know, people who happen to have some Bitcoin that they hold themselves. Right. And maybe we, we can get to this in a minute, but um, yeah, well, anyhow, so, so, um, so that happened. Uh, we filed the comment and as you say, there are very um, big procedural um, deficiencies with it. And I think recognizing that, Trump administration sort of tried to cure that a bit by giving more time. Yeah. And so they did, they gave more time, still not enough to really um, be up to standard. Um, and they did an interesting thing. First, they gave more, well, they bricated the rule. They didn't create two different rulemakings. The rulemaking is still the same one proposed rule, but they split up the contents into two pieces. One was the self-hosted wallet stuff that we were just discussing about, the counterparty identification. And the second piece was um, a currency transaction report requirement, which 
exist obviously for cash and bear instruments today. If you go to your bank and withdraw $10,000 or more, your bank will automatically file a report with FinCEN saying that you did so. That does not today apply to cryptocurrency. So if you go to Coinbase and withdraw from your account $20,000 worth of Bitcoin, no such report is required automatically for you. And so they're saying, we want to create that kind of report for crypto. So they bifurcated it and then they gave, I'm, I'm like forgetting now, but they gave like 15 more days for the first and 30 more days for, for the second. They gave like 15 more for the CTR stuff as if to say like, this is not controversial and should just happen as soon as possible. Right. And we'll get to whether that's controversial in a second because that's what our current comments yeah. about. And then for the counterparty stuff, they're like, okay, we see that this is like the community is upset and might have some real grievances about like the threat of extortion and things like that. So we'll give 45 days for that. Yeah, and 40 it was so weird. It's very weird. Um, both pushed it into the next, both timelines right. pushed it into the next administration, the 15 day just barely into the next administration and the 45 day pretty far. I don't know what the motivation there was. It's very, very odd. Yeah. No matter what, no matter what, we ended up with the Biden administration. Well, and, and, and we should say that we we took the opportunity to comment again during that window, right? Um, because um, uh, number one, we discovered new procedural uh, issues, um, but also uh, in the intervening time since the last comment period in this new extension, Congress passed a law. Yeah the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. And included in that was uh, basically an amendment that was a piece of legislation related to anti-money laundering right. um, that changes the authority FinCEN has over this stuff. And so we made certain arguments related to that. So that yeah, was our I second think, comment. I think we, we, we go over those in the last podcast we recorded, yeah. and you can read our second comment. It was just weird the way they originally tried to find statutory authority in the Bank Secrecy Act to justify this expansion of surveillance into crypto transactions. There's probably plenty of authority there, as we pointed out, I think. But the, the authority they cited made no sense and could have easily been challenged, I think. And the NDAA made it very plain that that was the case because the NDAA created new authority that didn't exist when they made the first rulemaking. And so it's like it was, it's all a mess yeah. Uh, it must have been quite hectic over in yes. Treasury at the end of the Trump administration, if I had to guess. <laughs> so then fast forward after January 20th, um, new administration, uh, FinCEN issues a further extension, this time further extending the entire rule for this 60 time, days. It's personal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a, normal, a normal comment period. And so, yeah. So 60 days, um, is to a totally standard amount of time. And so that kind of cures all of the procedural defects. Um, and so at this point, why are we commenting a third time? And the reason is that um, we had been um, extremely focused on the, as you say, most egregious piece of the proposed rule, which is the counterparty identification piece that affects self-hosted wallets. Um, and we really didn't um, spend much time discussing the currency transaction report requirement, proposed requirement. And so now that we have this time, we say, okay, well, let's focus on this, especially because um, we have a, a good expectation to believe that given all the feedback that FinCEN has gotten about this rule, that the counterparty identification stuff will, I hope, I, I expect, not see the light of day in the final rule. 
but that Finson has a very strong interest in actually instituting the currency transaction report piece. Um, And so that's what we focused on in this new uh, comment letter. Um, So uh, maybe you can begin by telling us um, what is a CTR and what is Finson trying to do by sort of creating a new virtual CTR? Yeah. So the CTR stands for currency transaction report. And, you know, there are lots of different surveillance um, nuts and bolts to the Bank Secrecy Act. There's SARS reports, which a lot of people are familiar with, so-called suspicious activity reports. Interestingly, those didn't exist in the original Bank Secrecy Act as implemented back in the 1970s. Um, they came later um, in the in the 90s, I think, maybe even in the in the late 80s. But the Patriot Act really juiced up the suspicious activity reporting stuff. Um, CTRs have been around since the very beginning of the implementation of the Bank Secrecy Act. The BSA is this law passed by Congress, and we've talked about this before, the way statutory authority works, that basically gives the Secretary of Treasury a lot of power to craft any kind of specific report. Like you'd think it would be our elected representatives who decide there should be reports about this and this and this, but actually the elected representatives, Congress, all they've said is the secretary of treasury who is not elected, they're just appointed by the president can choose which reports financial institutions have to give how effectively they need to um, not to be weird, but snitch on their customers to the U.S. government because that's basically what the law tells them to do. Snitch, snitch implies um, <laughs> that you're telling about somebody's malfeasance. No, it's not. It's not snitching. It's spying. It's spying. That's you're, true. You're basically spying for the government and transmitting information, even whether there is uh, illicit or criminal or whatever activity or not. Right. I guess the suspicious activity report is kind of like a snitch. But the thing about CTRs, um, CTRs have nothing to do with suspicion. Uh, so since the 1970s, the uh, implementing regulations that Treasury uh, enacted with the authority from the Bank Secrecy Act said, if you're an American and you are transacting more than $10,000 in cash or other bearer instruments like negotiable instruments, checks and things like that, uh, your financial institution, which is helping you do that, needs to make note of it, take down your name, uh, mention the amount, and automatically send that information to FinCEN, um, to Treasury, uh, FinCEN being the division that now focuses on policy in that, in, that, in that space in Treasury. And so this is, you know, this is very different than your normal cash transactions when if I was to pay you, Jerry, you know, there's no report automatically generated by either me or you or any third party that says Peter just paid Jerry this amount of money. But if I go and I take money that I received in like a bank wire or I have in my bank account and turn it into cash, um, that moment generates this report if it's over $10,000. And that can be pretty sensitive information. And that report goes automatically. There's no, there's no judge that says like, yes, you law enforcement have reasonable suspicion that this is related to a crime. Therefore, I'm going to let you find out more information about this transaction. There's no judge. There's no warrant. There's not even a subpoena. By virtue of being a U.S. regulated financial institution, they are obligated, sua sponte is the Latin word, on their own volition to just 
find out this information whenever it happens and send this information to Treasury. So that's a currency transaction report. It's, um, it's one of the more invasive surveillance statutes that exists in the U.S. in that it, as I said, operates completely without warrants, conveys a fair amount of information about our day-to-day activities. Um, and another thing that's worth noting is, is when it was implemented in the 1970s, $10,000, which was the threshold that was picked back then by Treasury, was by Treasury or by Congress? By Treasury. Okay. Maybe we can check that, but okay. yeah. It, either way, it was $64,000 in real value. So in today's dollars. In today's dollar, yeah. So your purchasing power was the equivalent to $64,000 today. And that's a pretty high threshold. Like I can't think of that many $64,000 transactions I've made. And I definitely can't think of any that I've made using cash or even like a cashier's check. Like normally we use wires when we're making transactions of that size. And to to some extent, a transaction over $60,000 is a little suspicious if it's happening in cash. Um, But transactions over 10,000 are a lot lower. Uh, 10,000 in today's dollars. So what's happened is we used to have this threshold that was like for extraordinarily large transactions where maybe this is like an American moving money to, you know, an offshore account by going through a briefcase full of cash at one point. Um, Now it's a threshold that's much lower. Now it's a threshold that's like, you know, a used car purchase, which is something much more mundane. And as any Bitcoiner will tell you, getting lower all the time. (laughs) <laughs> yes. 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 Uh, no comment on current rates of inflation <laughs> and what they may or may not be. Um, okay. And so those currency transactions reports exist for dollars, uh, but they don't exist. This is for crypto. So like I was saying before, if I go to Coinbase and I withdraw $20,000 in Bitcoin, Coinbase may well file a suspicious activity report, mm-hmm. but they have no obligation to automatically file a currency transaction report as they would have if what I was withdrawing was $20,000 in cash. Right. And that's because, um, you know, the, the, the way the regs are written, currency is defined as, you know, the money of a foreign nation or state or of the U.S. government. So obviously Bitcoin doesn't qualify. So there's been this you could call it a gap in the sense that Bitcoin is like cash, and yet these currency transaction reports didn't apply to Bitcoin transactions like they did to cash. And this gap has been known and acknowledged by folks, both you know people who study the law like ourselves and regulators for a while. I, I think you were on a panel, I think, in New York with the former um, director of FinCEN, Jennifer Shasky Calvary, and she mentioned what did she say? Like an ECTR is inevitable or something like that? Yeah. She says, we're going to have to eventually consider an ECTR. And she said this in like 2014, 2013, 2014. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been a long time coming. So it's here. Um, and look, I mean, I, I think we've said before that we have, um, we don't ask for special treatment, right? We want cryptocurrency to be treated um, no worse than a legacy financial system, no worse than cash. So if it's treated the same, we really don't have a problem with it. Uh, Nevertheless, in our comment letter, uh, we say that FinCEN should not create this VCTR. Uh, Why is that? So a few things. Um, For one thing, 
when we started thinking about this aspect of the rulemaking, as opposed to the counterparty identification aspect, there were a few things that sort of come to light. Um, and, and sort of just like a light bulb that came on in, in, in my brain anyway, I hadn't previously thought much about CTRs versus SARS reports. So there's, there's an avalanche of SARS reports. There's millions that are filed per year now. Used to be thousands at the start of the SARS regime, and now it's millions per year. There's an incredible amount of data then about suspicious activities in transactions. And so there's already all this data, right? Why do you need currency transaction reports separately from SARS reports? That's a, that's a question worth asking. And I'm just talking generally, not just about Bitcoin, but about any, any transaction. Because filing a CTR does not obviate the need to file a SAR. Um, you have to file both. So if it's a $10,000 or above cash transaction, if it's suspicious, you have to file both. If it's not suspicious, you just file the CTR. And there's something really interesting about that, which is, by definition, if Vincent is receiving a CTR without a SAR, it is receiving a report about a completely innocent transaction. Because the standard for filing a SAR is not even very strict. You have to file a SAR if there's any reasonable expectation that the transaction is related to crime. Not that you think your customer is doing crime necessarily. You would definitely file a SARS report then. But even if you think that like, well, this money might be two hops away from a crime. My customer might be innocent, but there still might be something to do with crime and this money flow. Might be laundered money from a couple transactions ago. Technically, you'd have to file a SAR then too. Um, So the bar for filing a SAR is really low and as you'd expect, we therefore get millions of SARS filed by financial institutions about their customers to FinCEN without a warrant, without any kind of judicial process to limit that surveillance. And the CTR reports then, maybe they're a relic. As I said, they're older than SARS. Maybe they're useful for other reasons. Like, we don't think this person's doing anything wrong, but the government might be interested that they've got all this cash because maybe they need to report it for taxation. Even though we've got no suspicion that they're avoiding taxes, maybe that's why we're going to do this. In which case, it's quite evidently a a warrantless surveillance regime. Like, nothing to do with crime, but maybe you want to know that this person has a bunch of cash on hand. Once you have it, you've got a database that you can query. Right, right. Right. Um, and, And it's just... It's remarkable, I think, that that we have the CTR regime on top of the SARS regime, again, because if you're getting a CTR without a SAR, you're getting information from a bank about a customer's completely non-suspicious transactions. Right. Why, why should the government have a right to get that information without a warrant or any judicial process? And so what's funny is that uh, Congress seems to be recognizing this in the NDAA that we just talked about. So this law that Congress passed on like January 1st of this year, um, it has a piece about CTRs. That's right. So aside from the statutory authority stuff that the NDAA made clear about FinCEN's authority with respect to crypto reports, there's this other section, not related to crypto at all explicitly, that says, um, hey, you've got these thresholds. For SARS reporting, $2,000 for MSBs, $5,000 and up for banks if the transaction is suspicious. And for CTRs, $10,000, irrespective of whether the transaction is suspicious. These thresholds were created years ago 
in the case of CTRs, gosh, 50 years ago almost. Inflation is a thing. Uh, personal privacy uh, norms are changing. Technologies and data security are changing. Um, cybersecurity threats are changing. Uh, we've seen leaks from FinCEN of sensitive information about suspicious activity reports. We've seen the Solar Winds hack recently, which apparently didn't actually target FinCEN, but certainly targeted other parts of the federal government. Is it still right to be collecting all this information about Americans? Is it still cost efficient from a standpoint of financial institutions having to do compliance? Congress basically said, hey, let's do a study. Let's have Treasury reevaluate re the actual cost benefit of having these thresholds set where they are. Are they getting information that's really useful to stop crime? And is that information actually valuable enough to make the costs both in privacy foregone and administrative costs really worth it? And so that is in this law, again, that was passed uh, over the president's veto um, just a couple months ago. And these two things, this fact that CTRs are quite evidently warrantless surveillance of entirely innocent transactions, so maybe of dubious constitutional provenance, and the fact that Congress has just asked Treasury to reevaluate the threshold on CTRs, lead us to say, look, it might be reasonable to treat electronic cash just like cash. And therefore, you might say it's reasonable to have virtual currency CTRs. But this seems like a particularly bad time to extend the CTR regime into new transaction types, into new technologies. Maybe do the study first, at the very least, that Congress asked you to do, and then see where you land, and then see if we want to implement this. Um, I think I, I, I'm not holding my breath that this final rulemaking will not include some sort of ACTR requirement, but I think it would be much more prudent and good governance and respectful of Americans' privacy if they held off. Right. And so we're not saying um, <clears throat> you should never do this. We're saying, uh, look, you really shouldn't do this right now. I mean, I think if you ask us, they should never do this as a matter of constitutional law. But that's I, a different... I, I, yeah, I especially don't think it's necessary if you already have SARS. And right. I would be very curious what the response to that is. Like, what information are you getting that you're not getting in SARS? Why do you need all this information about self-evidently innocent transactions? Right. I wouldn't go so far, right? Self-evidently non-suspicious. In innocent is, uh, <laughs> is quite, a, quite a burden of proof. Um, okay, Um so we're saying, look, you really shouldn't do this now. And you're right. I'm not holding my breath either that when this rule becomes final, it won't include a CTR. But you know what might well happen um, is this rule may not become final for years. That's a possibility. It gets slow balled. Um, uh, you know, who knows? Okay, so we say that, but of course we don't stop there. We're saying, okay, but if you must, if you insist on having a CTR, which you probably will, um, how should you do it, right? Yeah. So, and what, what, yeah, what we say is uh, it should be no more privacy invasive than the existing CTR standards. So do you want to talk about yeah. their proposed CTR and what, how it's different from the existing sure. kind of CTRs. So this is, this is the typical lawyer belt and suspenders thing. Like we don't want our belt to 
break and our pants to fall down. Um, but acknowledging that it might, we should be wearing suspenders as well. Um, so if there's going to be a CTR, if we can't stop it, if we can't convince them to delay it or rethink it or do the study first, what should it look like? In the proposal, and this is the original notice of proposed rulemaking from the Trump administration in December 23rd, Merry Christmas, here's a proposal. In that proposal... And by um, the way, that is the only proposal we've said. That is the rule. The, the other two are extensions, right? Extensions, yeah. In that proposal, they don't actually go into very many details, interestingly, about what should be in the CTR. In the first extension... Mm-hmm. where they were like, okay, we'll give you 45 days to talk more about counterparty stuff because we recognize that's controversial, but we want to do this CTR thing soon. So we got 15 days for that. There's a, there's, a, there's a discussion of what might be in this CTR that we want to have done in the next 15 days. Now, fortunately, there was another extension, so there was more time to talk about it. And in that proposal, which is like the second one, which is an extent yeah. anyway, yeah. it's complicated and confusing. In that proposal, there was sort of a, um, a very colloquial discussion of what might be in the CTR. And this surprised me because even in the, in the original no good, very bad notice of proposed rulemaking, I had assumed we're just talking about an, a normal CTR, the same form that a bank has to file when a customer withdraws cash. It's, it's technically IRS form 104. Um, would be simply repurposed to be used in the cryptocurrency context. And so, if you look at that form, it, it includes you know the customer's name, the total cash in, total cash out, foreign currency in, foreign currency out. You don't have to fill all these boxes, but you fill the relevant ones um, related to the transaction, and that's that's what you get. In the and so, and so just to be clear, what the traditional. CTR form, form 104 requires is name of the person, amount, and currency type. Yeah, that's it. And well, I mean, and if there are multiple currency types or multiple people involved. Sure. The bank has knowledge of those other people. Sure. Or if the person is acting on behalf of another person, so this is more like beneficial ownership, like Mm -hmm. who is actually you know, the person who shut up the bank is, is person A, but it actually they were doing it for person B. All of that needs to be reported as well if the bank knows it and there are ways to augment the form and supply additional information that the bank has. But there isn't like an exhaustive, you must have all of these six or seven data points about the transaction. The bank is allowed to basically say, this is what I got from my customer when they made this otherwise seemingly reasonable cash transaction. Here's what I got. Here's you know? what I got. And again, just from a general level, it's the person or persons, the amount, and the type. Yeah. In the proposal, this is that middle one that happened right at the end of the Trump administration. There's this colloquial discussion about, well, what could we have for a virtual currency transaction report? We could have more. Of course, we could have more data because we can create it from scratch. We yeah. can this money is programmatic. So there's probably a whole bunch of data to be had and we want it without a warrant. Um, they say uh, we'd love feedback from the, the community on, on what it could include, but we think it could include things like um, the hash of the transaction, the transaction ID, um, the 
Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency addresses that are the sending and the receiving addresses in the transaction, signature data for the transaction, an amount for the transaction, all of this. Um, and yes, in some cryptocurrencies, you could have all that information. But this is no longer a currency transaction report. This is no longer a report that gives the regulator this one discrete data point. Customer has moved $10,000 or more out of the surveilled financial system. Because that's, that's the core data you get from a CTR. Is, you know, this money was floating around in a fully identified space between banks, and now it's become a bearer instrument, which means we're not going to know where it goes in the future. You get that one data point, this transition has happened, and it's this customer that made this transition. If you start including things like Bitcoin addresses, transaction hashes, um, then you've got a bunch of data that might be readily obtainable by looking at a public blockchain, but you've got it centralized in a report that's going to end up in a database that's going to end up hacked or leaked. And I don't mean to be you know, cynical, but it will. That This is just the world we live in today is, is centralized databases get hacked. And so... What we say in our in the second half of our comment is all of that is not acceptable. Uh, you know what we want is what we want is for them to slow down and rethink CTRs in general. But short of that, what we want is parity with cash. So there's one data point that should end up in this vulnerable, you know, going to be hacked government database, and that one data point should be customer name moved ten thousand dollars off of the exchange, ten thousand dollars or more. It should not include all this other information. It is also worth noting that all this information is not always available, depending on the cryptocurrency involved. So if you were to set these requirements, specific fields, like give us the transaction ID, give us a hash of the transaction, give us the sending and receiving address, well, some of that information is not actually readily available for certain cryptocurrencies that do you know, some sort of address masking, as they probably should. And some of this data would not be particularly available or useful for certain new types of Bitcoin transactions even. So, so even if it's a public blockchain, if you're using the Lightning Network or, or soon maybe Taproot type transactions, this data might also not be available. And the bigger issue here is we don't even know what the next order of cryptocurrency innovation will be. It might have none of these data fields associated with it. And now you've got this standard that exchanges need to um, be compliant with that is completely obsolete technologically and doesn't make sense. So, there, you know, the personal privacy reason for not having this augmented virtual currency CTR is, is the one that's most compelling to me. But the tech neutrality argument is also pretty compelling because if you set this in stone in regulations, you're just going to have to have new regulations in a year or two years when the things that you were requiring, the data points you were requiring, don't even make sense in the, in the, in the world of new technology. Yeah. And if you, um, the existing cash transaction reports or currency transaction reports, uh, are tech neutral and Vincent has always been very good about being tech neutral. They're tech neutral because all you have to report is the person's name, the amount in dollars, right? And the type of currency transaction done. That's right. That can apply to anything that exists or that we can come up with. Yeah. Um, if, it, and, if it's digital cash, then this will work. Right. <laughs> and so uh, what they're proposing here is not just applying the existing 
they're not just saying, well, we want, we have this gap, CTRs don't apply to crypto. We want to apply CTRs to crypto. That's not what they're doing, really. What they're doing is saying, we're creating a new bespoke report report for yeah. crypto that we're calling CTR, right? But it's really something new. And yeah. so we're saying, uh, no, um, you shouldn't do that. And if you're going to have a CTR report, really make it be a CTR report. Yeah. Use the exact same form. Yeah. We, we even, I mean, this is a little pedantic for a, <laughs> a report, for a comment to a regulator, but we, we tried to make it simple and easy. Here's how you can augment Form 104 very simply. It, it's, simply it's basically take Form 104 and wherever there's a mention of foreign cash, say foreign cash and or convertible virtual currency. Because then where you were previously filling in um, foreign cash in, 5,000 euro, whatever it is, I guess it wouldn't be 5,000, it'd be 10,000 euro. You're going to, uh, for a virtual currency, say uh, foreign cash or CVC in, okay, uh, one Bitcoin came in. And you then need a new little field in the form uh, where it currently just says foreign currency type. When you say euro, you, you say foreign currency type or CVC type. And you just rely on the exchange or financial institution to appropriately name Bitcoin uh, as Bitcoin and not Bitcoin SV, which is not Bitcoin. Um, and the, the, the same form works, you know? Uh, so so I, I guess the question is why complicate it? And, you know, th- there's other weird things. It's almost as if they wanted to just impose costs. And this goes back to the previous administration, impose costs on companies doing business in this space. There's, um, we were chatting with, with another lawyer in this space. There's this weird proposal for aggregation rules. So with currency transaction reports, if your customer moves like, uh, three $3,333 transactions in a day and they're all into cash, you still file a CTR if it's all within the same day because you aggregate. And for banks, a day is considered a business day because banks are open for like, what, two hours? Uh, one hour a day? I, I don't know. I, I hear they're with a three-hour lunch, right? <laughs> and money services businesses, which often operate 24 hours, um, Form 104 says, okay, not business out, not business day, but calendar day. And so you'd think, well, okay, so just like PayPal, um, Coinbase is open 24 hours. Uh, they should just be have the same rules as MSBs and it should just be calendar day. But the proposal didn't do that. The proposal said any 24-hour period, starting with the first unreported transaction, I don't even know what that means. I say unreported transaction because that's actually the term. I don't even know what that means. But assuming it's like, if you can create a $10,000 aggregation from any one transaction starting at any point within a 24-hour period, then you file a report. It's like, this is a complicated piece of software you'd have to actually write to do this. And it's just weird. Just a calendar day. Yeah. So we say that too. But, you know... This goes back to the NDAA, by the way, where Congress said, hey, you should do a cost-benefit analysis about the procedures that regulated institutions are going to have to put in place to comply with CTRs or have already put in place because they're just looking for a look back. Um, But also procedures that need to be in place at the agency 
I don't know why they're making more work for themselves. Why create a whole separate reporting regime that you'll need to have a separate database to receive the information, secure that database differently. Database has different qualities, different risks. If it includes more personal information than a normal CTR, uh, you're going to get reports at weird intervals. If you have this aggregation rule that isn't calendar day, it just doesn't, it's weird. It doesn't, it's almost as if um, there's somebody, it's almost as if there is a policy office that's designing, you know, coming up with these rules and not talking to the people who have to implement them and use them. It could be. Could be. But the, those people had, you know, 15 days to respond. <laughs> um, okay. So that is what we told them. And by the way, we also told them, you know, going to what you just said about cost benefit, um, that they need to do, you know, FinCEN, uh, as a federal agency, uh, imposing costs on society and on industry with its regulations. They need to do a cost benefit analysis, um, between the different alternatives and they need to have, if they want to do a completely bespoke, um, form for, virtual currency, they need to show that the benefits far outweigh the costs of doing it the way we've always done it. Yeah. It's, uh, um, so that's it. So we filed that, um, the deadline for comments is March 29th. So there's still time for folks if they want to comment. And by the way, what is the, the, the comment period again is not just about the CTR. It's about the whole rule. Yeah. It's just that, you know, everybody, uh, you know, I think that everybody who felt strongly about the uh, counterparty identification piece for self-hosted wallets has already commented on that probably. I think so. Um, And what people probably neglected to comment on was the CTR piece. And so to the extent people want to comment on that, um, they still have until March 29th. Um, And so that's that. Um, I think that's where you should leave it for today. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I'll just say this. Uh, there have been some folks out in the Twitter sphere and, and other places who've been trying to come up with like, how should I respond to the right. CPR requirement? Right. And we've got some really interesting suggestions yeah. for, you know, alternatives that FinCEN could, could choose. And one of them is, what if the exchange does sort of heightened surveillance about transactions, collects all this information, but keeps it on file and doesn't have to file a report right away, you know? Um, and maybe they only have to re- file a report if they can't get more information about the transaction or something like that. I, I think this is interesting from a data minimization standpoint. It would mean fewer reports to to the, to the regulator, to a vulnerable government database. But I think what worries me about that approach is for FinCEN to write that into rules, they have to say things like, if you can do blockchain analysis on the transaction, do that. And you don't file a report unless blockchain analysis reveals something in the next few hops or something like that. If you can't do blockchain analysis on the transaction, because again, you're using your customers using Monero or Zcash or Lightning Network or something, then file a report right away. This is this starts getting yeah. like 
this seems like a good idea because it means fewer reports to government. But it starts getting, to me, really unnerving that FinCEN's going to be crafting rules that point out the need for blockchain analysis in certain situations and and the obviation of a need to file a, um, you know, a suspicious or, or a currency transaction report in certain contexts with certain technologies. It's, just, it's prejudicial and it starts it's on a path to being, again, not technology neutral. Not technology neutral, obsolete pretty quickly yeah. if, you know, if technologies change and for me, as much as I don't like CTRs, they do have the benefit of being tech neutral. Right. Again, the, the, the thing the regulation focuses on is just money has moved out of the surveilled financial system or into the financial s- system from the unsurveilled world of physical bearer instruments. And by the way, something um, that we should point out is that um, all the information that FinCEN proposes could be collected, you know, all the extra information that they want to get, transaction ID and the transaction hash and all this other stuff is still available to them. That's right. Um, They can get the info from a CTR. And if any of these transactions reported is of interest to them, they are still, they still perfectly have the ability to go to the relevant financial institution that submitted that report and say, Hey, Here's a subpoena. Can you please, or hopefully a warrant? Can you please give us all of these other data points? It's going to we'll get it. Yeah, it's just going to be a subpoena. It's not going to be a warrant. It's not going to be a warrant. There's absolutely no warrant requirement for <laughs> you know for law enforcement. You get a warrant from your bank. Maybe maybe um, we should start the voluntary warrant movement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, again, I mean that's that's actually an argument against CTRs though fully. It's yeah. like, it's like, you shouldn't just be hoovering up this information. You should assume that exchanges are keeping good records and you can have some record keeping requirements for financial institutions. And then when you have suspicion of a crime, maybe because the SARS report was filed, right. Or maybe because you're leading an independent investigation and you found evidence of criminality elsewhere, then go get information from the exchange. Um, and then you avoid this honeypot problem where you've got a database of a whole bunch of, I'm going to say, innocent transactions, <laughs> at least not suspicious transactions. Right. Um, and it gets hacked. And then everybody knows whose Bitcoin addresses everyone has and people get extorted. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I know you also wanted to talk about, um, I know you, you, know, you wanted to do a, a full securities analysis of NFT. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> opposite of what I said, but I don't think we want to, uh, I don't think we have time to do that in this episode. Uh, so maybe we'll, we'll do that next time. Okay. Sounds good. All right. (laughs) Bye Peter. Bye Jerry.